Welcome to The Jump Off Point, an original podcast by Jump Capital. Today, our host, Saya Nath, sits down with Sahil Bloom to talk about the real work that goes into creators' journey of building an audience and the grind to keep creating. Sahil is an investor, entrepreneur, and full-time creator. Sahil has built an influential following with his views on startups, technology, and finance on Twitter through his newsletter, The Curiosity Chronicle, and podcast, The Room Where It Happens. He also founded and is the managing partner of SRV Ventures, as well as an extremely active angel investor. So I really want to start maybe at the beginning of your journey, right? So, you know, May of 2020, you had less than 500 followers. Now, less than two years later, you have over 500,000. But I'm very curious, how did that happen? You know, where did you start? And what was the moment in time when you decided, I'm really going to try to grow my voice on Twitter? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me. I'm excited to to get a chance to chat and share a little bit more about whatever insights I'm, I might have. I don't know if I have any, but uh, I'll do my best. <laughs> you know, the first thing I would say is that I didn't set out to build something. There was no real grand strategy about it, which is weird for me because I'm very type A. I, you know, my parents would tell you that I've always been a big planner. I always like to know what I was doing three months, six months, you know, five years in, in, in the future. And with this, it was almost like it was impossible for me to do. And it was my first experience with something that had this sort of like infinite scale of the internet feel to it, where it was impossible for me to predict at any point in time where I would be a month in the future just because of how the power laws worked with the growth, where, you know, when I first started, I had 500 followers, as you mentioned, it's May 2020. I posted my first thing, it caught fire. I think I ended up with like 2000 followers after that. Then for a while, it was kind of slow going, like nothing much was happening, but I was still posting things consistently. And then you have one thing that jumps you to five. And it was just this situation where I was like, creating consistently and taking daily actions that were putting me in a position where then like when those lucky things happened, I was there and I was ready to capture it and the opportunity was there, but it was very difficult to predict. So there was never a point in time where I sat down, you know, in 2020 and said, well, I think I could do this for a job and I think I could go raise a fund off of it. And I think I could do this, this, and this, and here's my plan. It just wasn't possible. And I kind of just gave up on predicting it. And that was actually a liberating feeling of like, actually just take your hands off the reins and ride the wave when you have something like that. That was a really fun experience. I feel like I meandered a little bit off your question though around just what prompted it. And for me personally, what it was, was a very unique point in time. And the realization that we were in this moment in May, 2020, if you recall, COVID had struck in a big way. We were all stuck at home. The market was ripping and the economy was actually in the tank. You know, people were out of work. Uh, service workers were all stuck at home. Most stuff was still closed down. We hadn't had any semblance of a reopening. And there was a lot of interesting and scary things happening in the economy. And there were a lot of people that were looking for answers around it. And what I found was that there was this bifurcation in the answers you could get. There were the experts, quote unquote, who were giving you the fancy words, jargon, acronyms, talking over your head responses. And then there was the like TikTokers telling you to YOLO into GameStop call (laughs) options on the low end. And I just looked at it and said, there has to be a market for the like, Toyota Camry answer here, the basic, you know, layman's terms, simple version of this that anyone can understand and digest. And that's what I really sought out to provide. 
Was there an inflection point when you realized that what you were doing was really starting to resonate with a certain group of people? Yeah, it was actually off Twitter too. I played baseball in college and had a lot of friends who kind of relied on me for the first seven years of my career pre-Twitter as like the finance guy. You know, I was working at a private equity fund. I generally was an observer of business and markets. And so they would always text me. It was like friends who, you know, now lived in their hometown in Virginia and were, you know, working at a plant or a factory, like doing very, very different things than what I was doing. And so they would hit me up and ask me questions about different things. And I started coming up with like stories or analogies to explain the concepts of what what was happening in the market because I couldn't use jargon. I couldn't use things that I could maybe say to my colleagues at work to explain these things to them. It would have not made sense. And so they were like my testing ground almost for these ideas and also my engine for constant ideas of what people were wondering about. And that ended up being where I figured out that there was something to it because I would share it with one of them. One of them would tell me, oh, I shared this with you know my whole group chat of friends at home and they all really appreciated it. And that got me thinking, that was like March, April, 2020, maybe I should start putting these things into some format more broadly. You know, and I originally thought like blog, newsletter, Twitter didn't really have a thread function yet. It was not embedded. So you had to actually like comment below an individual tweet. And I ended up going with Twitter mainly because of discovery. uh, And I wanted to have something that would capture more people if it took off and could get shared more broadly. But, but, But the impetus was really that offline, I had found that it was getting traction with people. So you talk about this idea engine, and I really want to dive into that because I think this career transition you made from this stable role in finance to becoming a full-time creator is something that a lot of individuals are chasing after today. One of the biggest blockers to that is just coming up with content. I think there's been this long-standing misconception that creators will always have something to say or something they want to make because that's just who they are. But content fatigue is a real thing. How do you think about keeping your content fresh and interesting? And where do you generate ideas from today? So I mentioned I'm a planner and I had to give that up in certain areas. I certainly did not have to give it up in terms of the actual ideation process. And I built a lot of structure from the early days around that kind of framework and um, structure that that I wanted there. And the reason for that was what I realized was None of this was ever going to be like a flash in the pan success. There's no such thing, especially on Twitter and with written content, there's really no such thing as like overnight virality where you suddenly wake up and you have a million followers. Just doesn't happen. It, you have to consistently create, keep pounding your head in the wall. It's much more like YouTube than it is like TikTok. TikTok, every now and then you have people that actually do do that and grow massive followings very quickly. Maybe it's not as valuable of a following versus your ideas, but that's a separate argument. The basic point that I realized early on was that I was going to have to create high quality content consistently over and over and over and over again in order to um, achieve something at scale. And Backing into it, then I said, okay, well, how do you actually go and create really high quality content over and over again? Because you need a bunch of ideas, you need a system for turning those ideas into insights, you need a system for turning those insights into something that actually works on the platform. And so for me, I kind of created bespoke, like what I think of as a content engine which at the top of it is everything that I would consume on a daily basis. I'm a big reader. So that was, you know, newsletters, books, articles, podcasts I was listening to, anything that was kind of coming in into my brain, basically, um, at the top of it all. And then 
I developed a system around note taking that effectively allowed me to like pull what the interesting insights were, the angles were out of that to figure out then how that was kind of kind of form in my mind into something I would produce. So an example of that is like Evergrande, the, um, the Chinese property developer that collapsed last year. I had been reading a bunch about it, consuming a bunch of interesting different perspectives on it, et cetera. I had been pulling different insights out of that over time, you know, over the course of a few weeks and realized that everyone was really focusing on the technical side of the default and the bankruptcy and not the psychological side. And I thought, okay, well, this is actually a, an interesting angle to take on something like this. No one's really talking about it. I can apply a unique lens to what is already being talked about and what is a highly buzzy uh, event that is happening and actually deliver something that's uniquely valuable relative to the noise that is out there about this right now. So that was just one example, but it's it was really for me about setting up structure and frameworks that were going to allow me to consistently just take the things that were naturally coming in and turn them into great high quality outputs. It's interesting you mentioned the Evergrande piece because, you know, when I I looked through your Twitter and a bit unique to you as a creator is you talk about a lot of different things, right? You talk <laughs> about your investing perspective, you talk about self-motivations, you talk about life generally, and then you do it in a lot of different spaces. So you have this massive Twitter following, but then you have your newsletter and your podcast. I mean, has it been a challenge to maintain a uniform voice across all of that? And then maybe more importantly, develop a community across all of those pieces? From the very early days of creating on the platform, I had looked, yeah, I'm a really analytical person. I've always been numbers oriented. And so I had looked at different kind of quote unquote big accounts within different sectors. And what I found was that most of the people within quote unquote FinTwit, like financial Twitter, that were solely writing about finance, markets, economy, had really tapped out in the like 100,000 area for the most part at the time. And then there were people you know, that had, that were writing about business more broadly that were maybe in the like 200, 250 range. There were people that were, you know, writing about growth and kind of like things more like, you know, James Clear and Naval and some of these other writers that had grown much larger followings. And so what I noticed because of that was that I should actually be intentional about expanding my sort of sphere of credibility or the things that I'm speaking about if I want to continue to grow. If this is something that I intend to pursue long term, there's a natural ceiling to what you can, you know, to the kind of sphere of interest around any given topic. And if you're starting really niche, which I actually think is useful because it allows you to be very focused, if you get stuck in that niche and you can't expand out, you tap out and suddenly you're like, oh, now I'm creating, I feel like I'm pounding my head into a wall. And so what I did was as I grew, I would test the boundaries of what I spoke about. And so for me, it was like very niche finance explainers early on. And I was really focused and stuck to that for probably the first six-ish months. And I grew kind of the base of my following around that. Then I started to kind of toe the line into like mental models and frameworks, decision-making principles, et cetera, and started to build more of a following around that and also started to kind of build a brand around being able to apply those to investing. And so I would always try to kind of connect it back to what that core was. And then as I grew from there, I started to test the line of like general growth and productivity and life motivation and just broader and broader things that expanded the sea of potential people that might want to follow me for those reasons. And what I found at every stage was that there was clearly a pull through from the market um, and that people wanted to hear about those things from me, which partially I'm just grateful for that people cared about the things I was saying and that I had 
you know, some level of unique earned insights from those areas that I was able to speak about them in a, you know, in an organic and hopefully interesting way. But I was really intentional from the early days about expanding my sphere. I mean, in, in the very early days, my Twitter bio was like pretty concentrated about, hey, I'm going to write about, you know, finance explainers. Now, if you look at my bio, it says I explore my curiosity and share what I learn along the way. And that is intentionally massively, you know, all encompassing from the world. If I want to write about space one week and like talk about things I've learned reading about the space economy, I'm going to go ahead and do that. And if it doesn't go viral, that's okay to me because I enjoyed, you know, writing uh, and learning about the thing. Going viral is is a phrase that I think a lot of creators are are chasing, right? And I think one question I'm sure you've gotten is how did you go viral? Was it a specific tweet? You know, it's fu- it's a funny phrase. I kind of pride myself on the fact that I don't really think I ever went viral. Like I I think even if you were just to look at the numbers, I, I think if you looked at my following growth over time, what you would find is that I never had the like one thing that grew me by 30 or 40,000 followers on that road to to 500. I don't think I ever had anything that grew me more than like maybe 10,000 max on that road to 500. And so that is actually something that I take a lot of pride in because it means that I was just relentlessly consistent in producing content. And I have been, I mean, I've produced, I've written at least one, you know, on Twitter, at least one thread per week for, Every single week since May of 2020, never missed a week. Didn't matter what it was. Newsletter, you know, I've written two newsletters a week every single week since May of 2021. And the newsletter's grown a lot as a result. None of those pieces, none of my Twitter threads ever reached, you know, I think I have one that did 60,000 likes, which I would consider on Twitter to be like mini viral. A real viral tweet is like, 300,000 plus likes, you know, it's all over the world and gets shared everywhere. And I've seen people do that and grow a lot off of it. I've never really had that. I've had a lot of things go like, you know, 20,000 likes and it's sort of like 5 million impressions, four or 5 million impressions. But a real viral tweet is, you know, 20, 30, 40 million impressions. Yeah, that's very encouraging. I think it's another misconception in this space that you hear about so often is everybody's waiting for that one piece of content that's just going to click and make them become this massive creator. And at its core, it's really about just hustling and being consistent and being resilient. Yeah, Um, it's much harder, though, to be honest. Everyone wants the hack to the like one viral thing, right? Like everyone reaches out to me and they're like, oh, what did you do to, you know, get this growth? Or what did you do to do that? Or what's the hack? You know, how did you hack distribution or do this? And like the answer is just that I wrote 200,000 words on Twitter over, you know, 20 months, right? And if you want to go do that, go do it. But I challenge you to, you know, <laughs> to go actually go do it because it's easier said than done. And maybe it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's, I mean, it was a lot of hours. And for the first 18 months of that, I had a full-time job where I was working, you know, 80, 90 hours a week. So wow. it was, um, it was quite a bit. It helped that I didn't have a life during COVID and I couldn't really <laughs> go outside. Fair enough. And I want to ask why Twitter, right? So you talked about in the beginning, it was very much about discovery and that Twitter is conducive to growth, which I agree with, but Now, especially in the past six to 12 months, there's so many new tools and platforms that have emerged to either help creators monetize in new ways or monetize more efficiently or create more curated content and courses. Yeah, I would say 
written content for me was always the holy grail. And the reason for that was because I love writing. I love storytelling. I love writing. It's a format that just feels so natural to me. It's also the format where I learn the most. I One of the things I don't really talk about often is when I'm writing, that's actually my way of learning these things. Um, because in order to distill it down to its simplest form, you have to really understand it deeply. And so when I was writing about these topics, I was also learning alongside the people that I was teaching, quote unquote. So that was kind of one principle of why I stuck to written content for a long time with Twitter and then with the newsletter. I think I missed the boat, not from a time, I don't think I'm too late to go do this, but I think I screwed up slightly by not doing more video early on. The podcast has been a entry point into that, but the level of connectivity that you generate with your community and audience with video is very different than with written content. And it's a meaningful, sticky relationship. And I've found that now with the podcast that we've, you know, that we're growing is just the depth of that interaction is very, very clear. I have done and been involved with a number of companies that have kind of you know, expanded the influence of creators, as it were, you know, Maven on the cohort-based courses. I've co-taught a course on several occasions with them. It's incredible, the economics that creators can generate um, with that type of thing when you have a scale audience. Palette does sort of decentralized hiring, leveraging creators and people with followings to kind of flip the uh, recruiting and hiring model on its head. There are several others that are kind of, you know, within all of those spaces that are uh, enabling more broad-based monetization. I was always pretty thoughtful about monetization, but I also did it in kind of off the beaten pathways. I mean, I launched a few businesses that I don't really talk about publicly that are, you know, that I'm a big part of that have leveraged my scale and platform, but that were kind of like off to the side. They weren't directly, you know, tied to my presence or my name or my brand, but benefited from those things. And so I had kind of built up, you know, by the time I left my prior job, I was making probably four to five times as much money on the personal stuff which wow. kind of de-risked the decision to go and leave. And it was, you know, a combination of all of these things. But there are a lot of opportunities if you're commercial from the early days that don't necessarily tie to like direct monetization of the platform that you're growing on. It's an interesting take. I mean, it's really impressive what, where you've gotten to and some of the numbers you threw out. But I think one of the things that many creators believe is that one of the biggest drivers of success to be able to monetize is to build a very deeply engaged community, right? So everybody in the space talks about this thousand true fans mantra, but many creators, especially emerging ones, uh, still struggle with. It's just figuring out who that loyal community is to them and more importantly, how you incentivize them to continue to participate. How have you thought about developing that incentivization within your own community? And maybe what's your advice to creators that are just starting off and building that? I go back to the Paul Graham age-old advice of do things that don't scale. I, to this day, engage with a massive number of people on Twitter um, around the things that I put out. I mean, when I put out a piece, I typically then reserve at least like two hours following it to actually engage with people that are responding. And the reason that was always important to me was I wanted to, A, incentivize the behavior of... um, of interacting. And I did that by replying in good faith and interacting with these people where they feel like they're actually interacting with a human and that there's a direct connection. Because I remembered trying to interact with big Twitter accounts when I had a small one and not getting anything back and just being like, wow, that's, you know, that's a big letdown, right? These platforms, the amazing thing about them is that you can actually interact with these people. And so being able to be that now and be a part of that, it matters to me. I also think 
if you change one person's life in some minor and slight way, that person is now your friend and a connection for life. And I feel that now with probably like tens of thousands of people. Um, I wouldn't say hundreds of thousands just because of the way Twitter interaction is, but probably tens of thousands at this point. And that is amazing to me. The other way that I do it is like, you know, my newsletter, when you subscribe to it, you get an email saying like confirming your subscription and saying to reply to it to kind of get it out of the spam box. When people reply to that and kind of do what I said, I personally reply to every single one of those emails. And it makes no sense time-wise. Like there's no way to justify it because, you know, I probably get right now... A thousand to two thousand new subscribers a week on my newsletter, and I don't know, maybe a few hundred of those actually do what it says and reply. And so I'm replying to a few hundred emails a week, you know, not like deeply personal and a long note or anything, but I'm replying, and it is super meaningful. Like you get replies to those things from people with some personal note about how something I did changed their perspective on something, or how they taught it to their kid, or how the thing is now, you know, being tested out in their school. And those interactions are actually why I do it beyond any money, like anything that you could possibly want around this stuff. It's so cool to feel like your content that you're producing from my office, you know, in my in my house here is reaching out into this, you know, massive world and actually reaching and touching people. And so doing those kind of things that don't scale, I think is the best way that you can actually continue to foster that community as you grow. That's really special. And I think only exacerbated by COVID, that's what people are looking for these days, right? They're relying on the internet, not only to just passively consume content like you used to three or four or five years ago, but to actually have these meaningful, very active conversations and interactions with people that they aspire to be like, or that they are inspired by. The one thing that I do want to hit on, I mean, we can't talk about community and how you've built upon your following without hitting on your latest piece of very exciting news, right? So you just launched this new fund. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, and in my mind, it really is kind of the most active way that you're engaging this community that you've built. You're allowing them to actively participate in exactly what you're doing. So maybe just talk about the fund. What was the motivation for launching that and what's the focus? Yeah. So, well, first off, I appreciate it. It was, it was definitely exciting. I had done, you know, I worked in the world of private equities as later stage cash flowing businesses, you know, like traditional LBOs, et cetera. I had alongside that done a lot of personal investing in the 2019 to 2021 timeframe, I had started to get more and more access via the platform that was growing. It became very clear to me that there was this flywheel around the ability to source and win allocations in these deals, and then actually support and amplify the companies via the platform. You kind of have this megaphone that you can talk about them with and and then internally help them with their own storytelling because of the frameworks and the, the blueprints that I had built. And so I started just thinking about ways to scale that up, basically. I had done... I don't know, around 40 personal investments probably by the time I was raising the fund. Um, And I went out to a few kind of mentors and advisors January 1st of 2022. They thankfully were willing to support and came back. And I ended up raising this $10 million fund, ended up having, I don't know, 150 or so LPs in the first fund uh, with an intention to expand to a much larger audience with fund two, um, whenever that does come up. And there's structural issues sometimes with raising, you know, from a large number of LPs that you have to work through, but there are ways around it now. And so my intention would be to kind of offer it hopefully to a much, much larger audience with, with the second fund. This first fund was a traditional fund structure, so I wasn't able to go super broad in terms of the LP base. But I'm sort of off to the races with it now, about 15-ish percent deployed out of the first fund, which sort of 
spanned some Q4 carryover and then Q1. And a lot of exciting stuff happening through there and, you know, companies that I can really organically support via the distribution platforms. That's great. And I have to ask, right? I mean, in a world where capital has very much so become a commodity, how are you standing out against the many established firms, especially when you think about all the ones that popped up in the past two years? It's pretty easy, to be honest. <laughs> when you have a... Good to hear. <laughs> well, I just, you know, I'm not saying that actually it came off when I said it as arrogant. I'm not saying no. it in an arrogant way. I'm saying it in like a very tactical way. I'm a really small fund with a very clear lever for value add in a sea of larger funds who have sort of unclear levers for value add. I think on one end, it's sort of a barbell. Like on one end, you have the Sequoia, Benchmark, Andreessen, Tiger Global, you know, Cotu, like these big funds that have this name cachet where, you know, when they lead around, it has a huge impact going out for recruiting, for next fundraises, for competitors. It's scary. They will continue to exist and do well. And then on my end, it's sort of, I can be collaborative with all of those guys. And a lot of the GPs at those funds are investors in my fund and are involved. And it's direct collaboration where I'm actually working with them on deals. And I'm, you know, I'm writing 100 to 250K checks. So it's small check sizes that aren't really wedging out other people. Um, I'm not competing to lead deals. I'm not pushing other people out. And I can really support. And so I can actually improve the chances of success of the deals they're doing. And so I think I'm sort of sitting in this like, Goldilocks segment of the market intentionally where, you know, the fund is big enough to be meaningful, but not so big that you're competing with people and getting pushed out of some of your highest value deal sourcing. And so that's where I intend to stay. I mean, my, my, my goal and intention, I think a lot of people raise the small fund with the intention of then raising the bigger fund and then raising the much bigger fund. I'm actually going to go like, you know, zig when other people are zagging um, on this. But my intention would be to stay small intentionally so that the strategy can remain very concentrated and remain the same. And I would rather scale AUM via new funds of similar sizes versus via bigger funds over time. I, I think it's a better strategy actually for me personally, given the context of my resources and what I want to be doing across all the media stuff as well for driving outsized returns for my investors. And how are you providing value to the companies you're investing in? Is it mostly in spaces that you're familiar with, other things in the creator economy? What's that value add that you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I try not to invest in things I don't understand uh, as as kind Good of a, idea. as a first as a first level. And I think actually, everyone says that. I actually don't think most people abide by that. I think you find a lot of people like FOMOing into things, especially right yeah. now. It's very easy to do, actually. Um, and I f have to fight it every day because you get an email saying like, oh, all these people are involved in this. And I look at it and I'm like, I don't really get it. And so it's challenging. Um, and with valuations being what they were, at least, you know, is really challenging because I think you can get sideways very quickly. So for me personally, I mean, the, the, the value add is being able to use all of the various arms of my platform to amplify the narratives of these companies. That sometimes includes, you know, just events like a fundraising announcement. I don't know, Wander, um, which is one that's been announced that I invested in as their Series A. I put out a video and I announced it on Twitter and it had 50,000 views in 24 hours and it brought in hundreds of new signups and bookings to the platform. So that's like, very tactically a real way that you can drive an acceleration for one of the companies. Beyond that, it's super organic, right? Like I have all these platforms, people follow me to learn about business, interesting ideas, startups, things that are happening. 
those are the companies that come to my mind when I'm talking about different things on a podcast or, you know, poking around, writing about things on Twitter, or writing about things in the newsletter. And so it becomes this megaphone that just naturally amplifies the things that these companies are doing. The other lever of it is internally. So I kind of consider that as external, but internally, a lot of these companies are early and they don't have you know, narrative and storytelling capabilities in-house. And so they're all often trying to figure out how to build community, how to storytell better around what they're doing to expand and, and amplify their go-to-market. And I have a lot of blueprints that can help with that. And, you know, I can help find resources to go and execute against that for them as well. So I found that those two kind of pillars are are the big ones. And again, the reality is with a small check size and a small amount of dilution, it's not a big stretch for me to try to be the highest ROI dilution on the cap table. Sahil, this has been awesome and really inspirational, I'm sure, to many people just to learn about how you've built this really incredible content engine and how you continue to build upon your community and create more value for them. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this month's episode of The Jump Off Point, an original podcast by Jump Capital. If you have an idea for the show or know of someone who would make a great guest, please contact podcast at jumpapp.com.